Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm so excited to have as my guest, Trish Wright. Trish is a trauma-informed certified sex and relationship coach with an emphasis on compassionate communication, self-love, and codependency recovery. She also works with the One Love Foundation to educate the youth to cultivate healthy relationship skills, which is so needed in our world today. Welcome to the show, Trish. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sumati. So glad to have you. Um, So, yeah, so I ran into you at a festival. We got to talking, and I wanted to know more about you. And I love that your um, work is trauma-informed. That word has been floating around, that phrase has been floating around a lot lately, and how important that is as our communities evolve, um, our sex-positive communities evolve. Um, So I want to hear all about that. But first, tell us a little bit about how you grew up to be a certified sex and relationship coach. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, you know, it's, it's a longer story, but you, anybody who's watching or listening, sorry, listening, um, reach out and I'll tell you all the the whole thing. Um, but some of it really looks like, you know, um, my parents were divorced when I was young and my father and his wife were Catholic and Christian and never spoke to us about sex at all. Um, in fact, I was 16 before he left at a, a dildo joke on um, Me, Myself, and Irene. Do you remember that movie? Um, Oh, yes. Yeah, he laughed at a joke, and I was like, oh, my God, he's sexual. But the other side of that, (laughs) the other side of that is that my mom and my stepfather were swingers, and they were very open about their sexuality with me. They would ask me to help them. Um, get dressed for these parties, and they were really, like, they would ask me questions about, like, we know that you're dating. Are you orgasming regularly? Have you had an orgasm? And, and you know, at 16, I was just wow. mortified. Uh-huh. I was mortified. Um, but I had already found pleasure, um, sexual pleasure, sensual, physical, solo pleasure in my, you know, like like most young children do, like, babies learn to self-pleasure and young children learn to self-pleasure. Um, one of the things that keeps them from, like, that's one of the places where shame is created um, mm-hmm. when your parents or your grandparents or someone tells you not to do that and they slap your hands away or something like that. But I I didn't know that it was um, acceptable in, you know, certain areas and how to, to work that out when I was younger. Um, so I had that, I carried that shame for a long time, but my parents in, when I was 16 really were like, Hey, you know, sexuality is a big part of relationships and going forward from that place, I became more open sexually. Um, I would sneak around the corner and watch my mom or watch, um, I wasn't watching my mom, but I was watching my, the television because it, uh, gosh, what is her name? 
like Sue Johansson and oh, who, the German lady, Dr. Ruth, of course. Um, uh-huh. I loved how what she was sharing. I loved what she was sharing. I loved how like direct she was. Um, and, and it was really intriguing. So I, I was also a really awkward child, like really awkward and not like my social skills were, you know, I wasn't popular and I was kind of weird and I like to be theatrical. So I wasn't the most like attractive, I suppose. Um, and as I became more confident in my sex and in my body, um, you know, some certain things happened to me. I had a couple sexual experiences that were non-consensual. Um, I'm not going to use the R word, <laughs> but it is that. And um, mm. and that changed my my sexuality drastically. And that mm. piece right there stimulated a, a desire for me to m- help make the world safer and... Mm. For, for everyone like I want I was like I don't want this to happen to anybody else in the entire world and you know a young woman at 19 18 19 I, I was like how do I help this and, and it took me some a long time to work through my traumas around that I had two experiences and I threw myself into healing arts um, and mm-hmm. that's how I gained all these amazing skills for the last 15 years Mm-hmm. Is, is by really unraveling that. That's how I got here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. It's similar to my story where I had a really traumatic breakup and um, from an open relationship after being in an open relationship for five years and was so traumatized that I was like, what happened? I thought I'll figure this out and learn this. And Again, like you did, threw myself into the education around how do you do open relationship without having a meltdown every time the relationship ends. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's what a good coach ends up being, a wounded healer, right? Yeah. Um, exactly, you know. And, and I, I do think that that's how, you know, how we've heard the whole, the kind of the trope of, you know, you, you can help what you have healed can help people with mm-hmm. that and and that's mm-hmm. the places that I have so I I got into at some point one of my friends looked at me and was like I think you might be a tantrika or a dakini mm. like just looked at me and I was like mm-hmm. I don't actually know what that means and, <laughs> and I was like okay whatever like I totally brushed her off and then another friend, not so long later, was like, I think we should go to the, advanced, the Institute of Advanced Studies of Human Sexuality. I think that's kind of up your alley. And I was like, okay. Mm. Like, this is all coming out of the blue. Like, I don't even know that I'm like a wild, deviant, wild beast sexually. You know, I'm like, ah. mm-hmm. and And I learned something like, okay, so I... I went to Mexico. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my story. Um, I went to Mexico yeah. to work in an Ibogaine center and um, didn't do very well there because I am not okay with people treating people poorly. What kind and of center like, was I don't, it? It was an Ibogaine center. I, Iboga is a West oh, that's African like a type root of bark. Okay, yeah, right, right. it's a West African root bark that helps the Woody tribe with the, um, it's a Woody tribe rites of passage. Um, it uh-huh. also helps with heroin addiction, um, mm. and you can look that up. 
Um, but I went down there, and then when I got back from the States after sort of having like a maybe this isn't my past moment, um, I was trained in a neo-tantra school mm-hmm. um, and loved it until I realized how appropriative it was and how right. harmful spiritually not teaching the traditional mudras and mantras and practices were. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had had some experiences where I stimulated some um, kundalini awakenings and it threw their lives completely off, which now I mm-hmm. see that as being pretty harmful. I was young. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. In that time in my life, I got into BDSM. Like, mm-hmm. I, I kind of dove into my curiosities around sensation. Um, in that place, I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe I should balance this out with some, you know, balance this very, very sensual, very feminine, very, like, if we just breathe, it'll work itself out kind of, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um maybe I should balance it out with the masculine energy. And I dove into BDSM and learned, I don't know, some wild, wild things and, and taught that for a long time as well. So now I'm coming to a place where the things that have helped me integrate my practices. So um, I stepped into Sex Coach University with Dr. Patty Britton and Robert Dumop, which are two amazing sexologists who who also taught at um, the Ad, uh, Institute of Advanced Studies of Human Sexuality before that completed, and have also taught at CIIS. Um, and I completed mm-hmm. that program in 2020. And I'm continuing to do more trauma-informed work because we live in the world that we live. We live in a very violent, capitalistic, patriarchal society that oppresses people who do not conform. Mm-hmm. And many of us have trauma. Mm-hmm. And that looks like doing gestalt work. You know, I'm in a gestalt facilitator program um, that has elements of shamanism and Buddhism and Taoism with a woman named Zuzay Angler, and she's phenomenal. Um, which is all mm. embodied training, dance, nonverbal. Um, some of it's nonverbal, working nonverbal traumas out, um, creating a lot of space and capacity for holding what is all of life. And mm-hmm. that kind of brings us up to date. I mean, I could go into all of the things, but I think that's where we're where we're at. That's really cool. Um, so the I'm curious about this. What, what did you say her name was? Zuzangler? Zuza Engler. Um, she's a. I'm in a program called Moving with Life, and she uh-huh. was a founding teacher of Soul Motion. Um, uh-huh. Oh yeah. Zuza, Zuza's practice is. I, I can't speak to it completely. Like you're gonna have to go look at her website and look at. Uh-huh. Her amazing qualifications, um, but how mm-hmm. I got to her, how I came to her, was through the Gestalt field. I had also gotten out mm-hmm. of a very traumatic, open, or polyamorous relationship that became incredibly violent and emotionally abusive mm-hmm. on both sides. Mm-hmm. He was physically mm-hmm. violent. I was emotionally manipulative. Um, mm-hmm. 
and and coming out of that is where I found her. I was like, there's so much stuff mm-hmm. that we hit on a core trauma level that is so non- mm-hmm. it's nonverbal that I need another mm-hmm. way to move this right. energy. And luckily, I found her right when I was starting to um, really dissolve, I could say, my codependent patterning. Um, and really, yeah, really start to look at the social program of limerence and love addiction as, as what quote unquote being in love was like, it was, it was just like a Mm -hmm. really profound time for me. Um, did I answer your question? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm just curious. I wanted to get a little bit into the the, you know, trauma recovery stuff that you call yourself a trauma informed coach. So um, this has been talked about a lot lately on social media about how our communities need to be evolving more toward, um, you know, the practitioners being more trauma informed that when we, when we were first getting into, you know, sex positive workshops and stuff in the sixties and seventies and eighties, it was like, you know, pleasure, sex, it's all good. And then we started learning like, Oh, some people can be re-traumatized by this and we need to be aware of tra- trauma triggers. So this is a conversation we're having a lot on social media lately. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about how you um, blend your training in trauma recovery with your coaching and how all these modalities have, have helped you with your own life and with your clients. Like it sounds like having kind of the intellectual understanding from the professors that you worked with and also the more embodiment teacher that both of those are necessary. Yeah. Mm, Definitely. So in my, in that really abusive relationship, I had a rolling three year PTSD trigger. We'll call it. Um, My nervous system was completely out of whack and and I don't, I, I mean, honestly, looking back, I don't think that I ever really regained, um, like, a regulated nervous system in three years. Mm. So in that, um, this is where I, for my own healing, this is where I started to just dive into learning about um, social, the social traumas around, mm-hmm. you know, programs of being like gendered programs. Do, do you know what I mean by programming or um, constructs Absolutely. of, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Like, and, and I started to dive into that. I started to take classes on how to work with PTSD survivors. I didn't realize what, what I was working with with CPTSD, but I knew that it wasn't like a normal pattern of like normal meaning like, I was different one time and I could manage my emotions and it didn't feel like I was being ripped in half every time something happened. So this feels different, you know? And so that's where I learned, Mm -hmm. like I took just off like amazing classes, internal family systems classes on my own. I took family constellation stuff. Uh, Gosh, I mean, gestalt, hypnosis, rebirthing, um, some one-off classes on abuse and narcissism um, and, and just started to realize the, not only the emotional, but the physical patterning that comes up. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think 
this is incredibly important to bring all of it in. Um, mm-hmm. Because I'm coming from this place from a, a personal experience, I'm, I'm noticing the body in a very different way. So I'm noticing how the cortisol and adrenaline is, is rushing through my client's body. Like I can see it in, in their fidget or I can ask them questions about it that they might not even know or maybe they're sweating. Um, the embodiment practices is to help people come back from disassociation um, in a way that's safe for them. We disassociate to keep us safe, right? That's an interesting right. mechanism of our brains. <laughs> um, and, and I like I'm looking at the my clients as holistic, right? It's a mm-hmm. mind body spiritual mm-hmm. approach. I'm looking at every step of the way. Currently, mm-hmm. most of my clients are yeah, most of my clients are sexually abused women and, from childhood that are deeply codependent mm-hmm. and are having are, are big people pleasers and self abandoners. That's one mm-hmm. subset of my my clientele. So mm-hmm. the embodiment practice is really to help someone find their body again, to acknowledge mm-hmm. what the sensations and feelings are that they are having in their body, to actually learn how to process those emotions that are coming up, um, to to find strategies to get out of the brain and to get back into the body, which also helps build intuition again and self-trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that reminds me of a post I saw today by a black man who does um, anti-racism and um, diversity trainings. And mm-hmm. um, he was saying something about how trauma-informed perspectives can sometimes place children of color or poor children as damaged and broken, uh, you know, and need saving. Um, and he was saying that they're, they're often more resilient than we think and they deserve help, not sympathy. So I think this comes from like a, a more of a racial perspective or, or poverty perspective where um, they don't want to be labeled in such a way where they need saving, but an acknowledgement that not only um, are they resilient and honest, but that there are um, there's systemic issues in place that can cause trauma among large swaths of the population. So I know you said yeah. you like to talk about the larger social beliefs and stuff like that. So it's a big topic, but it just made me think about how um, children are trained out of their intuitions you know, from this, and it's a kind of a larger social construct that children have to be seen, not heard, and there's this authoritarian model of parenting, so children are taught not to trust their own intuition, and then if there's trauma involved, then it's just gone, and they have to, like, relearn that, and particularly in poor communities and BIPOC communities, so whatever you want to say about all that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you brought this up. I've taken this really profound course um, by one of my, my my personal coach and mentor, um, Bridge Feltis. It's called Heal Thyself, a Transformative Initiation for People Racialized as White through mm-hmm. the Remember Institute. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take it again because the, 
like the first time I, I really had a bunch of my own um, socialized as whiteness in the way to be able to hear the content, but the content is so good. Um, mm -hmm. And in saying that, it's, it's, it's from there that I really started to dive in to the how did we get here? Because I'm always curious about how did we get here? Um, how did we get to be codependent? How did we get to be, you know, it's, I never grew out of the why stage. And what I want to say is that most psychology, in fact, most education is rooted in the wealthy white male perspective. And it has mm -hmm. been for a very long time. A lot of the cultures that mm -hmm. had education that, um, that were more like embodied practices somehow lost their, you know, like these civilizations lost their libraries. Mm -hmm. But especially psychology, this idea that someone is broken or someone is um, diagnosed as not um, being neurodivergent or trauma of some kind, meaning that they're broken, is based in, like, sometimes I think about it and I'm like, who were they studying and what's the norm? And it occurred to me that, mm -hmm. of course, the norm was based in who they were studying, educated young white men. This is another reason mm -hmm. why um, women don't get uh, diagnosed with ADHD, like as a, just a mm -hmm. concept, until late 30s, because they didn't really actually start mm -hmm. studying girls with ADHD, because it shows up differently with estrogen running bodies. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, is like when we look at poor communities, or when we look at um, BIPOC communities, or when we look at these communities of intersection. We have to look at intersectionality if we're going to mm -hmm. look at a, at a person to really hold them as their, their full vastness and their full mm -hmm. humanness, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the pieces that I, I come from in my work, that this, this is one of my most, my most important pieces, I think, is like looking at the whole person of like, hey, I'm looking at where did you grow up? What is your, what is your family life? What are the, what's your, your, your community? Like, were you in a religious community or were, were you in a, an atheist community or, or what were the values in that community? What were the values in your city, in the, the locale? Mm -hmm. Like I grew up in Montana in an incredibly poor, poor community. Um, I grew up in a, a trailer park in Montana. So, I have this intersection that sometimes when I'm speaking to my wealthy friends here in California, they're like, huh. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot. So it's, it's seeing the person and asking the right questions to not only mm -hmm. be seeing, you know, class, race, gender. Um, gosh, I could, yeah, there, there's just so many. The constructs of those as places of classifications and dehumanization. Because that is also mm -hmm. a place where trauma can show up is, is when there's places of being classified as less than a white man. Yeah. Um, my cousin was a Vietnam-era vet Marine, and he had really bad PTSD, and um, he became um, a coach and advocate for the next generation um, and has been working with 
people from the military with PTSD for many decades. And I don't think that this is his quote, but he did share this quote with me that um, PTSD is a, um, a normal response to abhorrent events. Um, mm-hmm. So it's almost like if you come out of, if you come out of, come out of combat and you don't have PTSD, then you're probably kind of numb or something, or you're, you know, maybe not a very sensitive person. Um, but that, that quote also reminds me of just any person who's not in the dominant group in our culture, anyone who's not in the, you know, wealthy, white male, cisgendered, straight, <laughs> you know, box, um, is going to have some kind of trauma already, right? Because that's a normal response to being subjugated. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes I wouldn't even go as far as using the word trauma here. Um, they are going to have uh-huh. whatever experience they're going to have, um, but there is going to uh-huh. be an outgroup experience. Mm-hmm. There will be an outgroup experience. And, and it's, I have this theory that I, I'm, I'm waiting for it to be wrong that most people, generally most people are seeking connection Mm -hmm. on a, on a generalized, the strategies, our strategies for getting our needs met. Generally this need for connection and belonging are pretty wild. Um, Mm -hmm. You know what I mean by that is like the strategy for me to feel belonging in my partnership that was abusive was to um, pretend to be submissive and to contort, like to say yes when I meant no, to, mm-hmm. and that was, that was one of my deep strategies for connection and belonging because I didn't feel safe, A, or feel like I could be myself and be loved. And mm-hmm. for people who have physical intersections, um, it's hard to, to, we'll say, hide those or, or not, you know, it, it's hard to, to move from that space. You know, you can't code mm-hmm. switch mm-hmm. as easily as maybe a, a poor white girl from Montana can, can speak the same language as a wealthy politician. Do you know what I mean? That's called code switching. Right. It, no, exactly. I get Fitting. it. Yeah. So are you kind of saying that even the people in the dominant group are hurting because they're seeking connection and belonging through means that aren't really going to get them that. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so, so, so glad that you, you're speaking to this. Um, <laughs> we haven't talked at all. So I'm, I'm really like, I'm, I'm like squealing. Cause this is one of the things that I think about constantly is how white supremacy or how capitalism or how patriarchy or how, um, all the isms and all oh, the, the matrices of oppression actually harms the people at the quote-unquote top. Um, mm-hmm. And I, if you ever want to know why I, what I lay in bed thinking about all night, this is it. This is how, mm. this is what I, what I think about. And it's, um, it started with, well, white guys, like just because it's, it's easy to look at them, right? They're, they're on top. We're told that they're on top. And I'm like, well, I wonder if we're all, if we're all trying to attune, like we're all meaning like women or people of color or um, disabled people or trans, queer, 
gay, like, you know, LGBTQIA plus communities, and we're all attuning, quote unquote, up to the, the white man, what are we attuning to? And I, I started to think a lot about attuning to people who have also been really shut down in not only in their bodies, but told to conform to, to, for their own belonging. They're taught to conform, mm-hmm. just like the rest of us, in the ways that we're taught to conform. Um, for them, it's really harmful because they're not taught to feel. So we're tuning to people who can't feel. I'm, I'm generalizing right. here, so I'm, I'm sure I'll get a whole ton of hate mail. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making a generalization to, to open up a conversation about this. It's like, oh, if you're not taught to feel your body, if you're not taught to feel your emotions, and you're taught to be stoic, you're also taught to be a dominant, um, quote-unquote, masculine force that is productive and forceful and pushy and gets his way and you know like we're taught to people who are are trained not to attune to other people and I actually think that the lack of attunement and feeling is is actually a weakness mm-hmm. I think Absolutely. that they're like that people like that are, are are actually at a weakness because a lot of us are like, oh, we can attune and create community. So, yes, exactly what I'm saying is that people are striving for connection almost at all times, whether it's an agoraphobic when they're like, I want connection, but I'm also like connection to self and fearful about people and, and the, the rest of the world. Like there's still a desire for. Um, and mm-hmm. saying that, yes, People are seeking connection and people who are we're attuning up to that can't feel or aren't in their bodies or don't know how to do that are, are deeply harmed as well. Yeah. We can go exactly. into incel conversation. That, we can go into, like, how, how, how it shows up in the world with men. Um, uh-huh. and, and I don't know if it's necessary from here. Yeah, no, it just reminds me of this interview I was listening to, a man who wrote a book recently called the man who broke capitalism, and it was about this guy who was the CEO of General Electric back in the day, and he was the one who invented the stock buybacks and profit at all costs and all everything about business should be about shareholder profit. There was no longer a sense of community and, like, being a good citizen in your town and stuff like that. And so it struck me that there was a quote by this, this man who broke capitalism when somebody called him on it. He said, whoa, 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 I'm just a guy in a room. Like, <laughs> he, he kind of um, acted very innocent and humble and really just thought of himself as just another guy. Like he did not think that he had this much power and that he was really changing the way our whole economic system works. He was just this guy in a room trying to, you know, do his job that day. <laughs> it just really struck me, that quote. But nobody sets out to, like, be evil and, like, you know, ruin our society. Most people are just trying to get through their day and get home and get some love from their spouse or whatever, you know. This really struck me. Yeah. And I love that you brought that up, too. Um, so a, a lot of people are, are taught to be saviors. You know, we've got a lot of programming from Disney and, you know, I don't know about you, I don't know where you grew up, um, but I was, you know, I had this very interesting teaching around um, 
we call it westernized history where there were all these, um, you know, savior men, um, Columbus being one of them, which now, you know, it's all come out that obviously he wasn't um, who we thought he was, is that that's one of the part of the, the programming, that's part of the, the, the structure of conformity. Like, are you helping someone? Because if you're not helping someone, if you're not sacrificing for the love of you insert humanity or your wife or your husband or whatever, then are you really loving? Um, and that, that really, it, it's just a really, the whole system has interesting blocks, like, like keystones that keep it running like that. Of course, nobody shows up to be evil. We just learn strategies to get our needs met. Nobody wants exactly. to push, nobody wants to push, you know, people of color out. It's just one of the strategies to keep, it's a strategy to keep people safe from like hundreds of years ago that they didn't understand because they were afraid, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And we're speaking with Trish Wright, and we've gone off on a lovely tangent about um, uh, power and privilege and um, anti-racism work and how that all intersects with trauma and codependency recovery. If you have any questions for Trish, please feel free to call in. The number is 657-383-1132. And you won't interrupt us. You'll be put on hold automatically. and We'll come and get your call at the right time. Um, again, that number is 657-383-1132. So let's, um, let's wrap around back to talking about people pleasers and self-abandoners. Well, hold on. I do <laughs> want to speak one last thing yes, about mm-hmm. um, yes. that I want to, I want to, connect trauma-informed work with this um, this look at social equality. And right. one of the pieces that I'm firmly, um, one of the things that I really feel strongly about is taking ownership of and, and acknowledging power and, and mm-hmm. power and privilege dynamics within in every dynamic. So if I'm mm-hmm. teaching at a festival, I'm going to use a really nice example. If I'm teaching at a festival and a participant comes up and is interested in me as like, as like some, like a sexual or a relational interest, I'm going to name that dynamic almost immediately because that's also mm-hmm. part of it. You know, it's like being consciously informed about the power dynamics helps mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it helps people come to awareness of what's really going on. I mean, I have mm-hmm. other strategies where I, you know, I won't participate with someone I'm teaching or obviously a client because for obvious reasons. Um, and because my work is sexuality and, and emotional intimacy and deep trauma work, um, holding specific boundaries around that is, is, is crucial. And that's part mm-hmm. of the trauma-informed work is, stepping lightly and, and watching. Um, and I'm, right. I also and heard your, people. your, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I, was, I was just um, going to say, um, and also giving people a choice, like going slow enough where they can have a choice in their um, process, right? 
exactly. And now we're coming back to the people pleasing piece. It's like if if you know that someone has had these sexual traumas, like you've done your intake form effectively and you've interviewed them to see if you're they're a right fit to either work with you or be in your workshop, that from that place, the understanding that they might not be able to make a conscious choice if they're triggered. I also think that is like a, an altered state of consciousness, whether you're doing drugs or when you're in a heightened state of sexual arousal or when you're really excited or when you're in a trauma state or any drugs. Like, you know, I, I think of this heightened state of awareness as a place where non, like where consent can't be actually fully given. But that's, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm taking what I know as consent and moving it way far out so that I'm watching and paying attention to people's somatic experience. Um, it's crucial because I don't know if they're aware of their body, what work they have done. Mm-hmm. How do I, you know, how do you, it's just, it's okay to take it slow is what I want to say. So bringing it back down to the mm-hmm. people pleasing piece is that, how I'm understanding, like I've done a lot of research, um, 4,000 BC and forward and backward and forward and backward, like multiple times around how did relationships get to be this way? And there's a pretty heavy Mm -hmm. influence. um, Okay. How do I want to start this? There's a pretty heavy influence of Catholicism and religious understanding about, um, well, worshiping the the person of intellect or power or spirituality like there's like this is part of the the hierarchy right and it also the nature of the uh, nuclear family and and kind of so there's cutting people off from God that they are actually God. If you, if you tell people that they are separate from God and now they're original sinners, then you install the program of shame. Then you tell mm-hmm. people that they have to be monogamous and, and fit into this, this kind of program and that you're supposed to breed, which creates a system there where you're like, okay, this is one love this is what your body. And then you tell people <laughs> that, okay, um, a man is stronger and more in, intelligent and the woman can be his property through marriage, mm-hmm. right? You can look all this up. I'm not telling you anything that you can't find on like, like encyclopedias and, and, and things like that. I'm just saying it in my own language. And right. so when you start to get to these places and you start moving forward and backward through the time timeline, historical timeline, you start to see that codependency is, is a social problem. It's actually one of the, a, a deep ingrained uh, program in society as well. Now, a lot of mm-hmm. the open and polyamorous and non-monogamous people are, are really forefronting, like they're like pushing forward through really authentic ways to live and love. Um, that are rooted in honesty and truth and authenticity and vulnerability and high integrity conversations without shame and their deep compassion, you know, like there's lots of these places. So coming back to people pleasing. So we're taught 
I'm going to generalize again. There's a, a generalization that we're taught to sacrifice our needs because needs are selfish, right? So here's another, here's a program, here's a belief. Um, need, your, your personal needs are selfish and that you are, one is to sacrifice oneself or one's needs for the other person because that's a proof of love. I mean, how many times were you in a monogamous relationship where they're like, prove your love? Or even in the early years mm -hmm. of polyamory, we're like, you've got to prove your love to me. Like, like we mm -hmm. woke up uh, um, unworthy of love? No, I'm, I hate to break it to you all. We woke up in this body worthy, inherently worthy mm -hmm. of love and dignity. So that's part of the program to start dissolving it. Is, is to look at where do I abandon myself, my true desires and needs, to, as a strategy to get a need met. Is it my own strategy? Mm -hmm. Is it a trauma strategy? Strategy? Is it a social strategy that I learned? Is it a, a societal or global um, place of uh, a strategy that I've learned to get my needs met? And what I'm finding in a lot of my clients is that they didn't know that there's another way. And they've mm -hmm. been so, it's been so beaten out of them, either like physically, literally, or theoretically, that, that this idea that they can't have needs or shamed for having needs, or maybe their ch childhood was, they grew up in the 80s where, or, or even younger where, where you let your child cry and, and learn how to quote unquote self-soothe. Like there's just like a lot of really interesting teaching around, around child rearing and concepts of love and, and intimacy and, and relational connection. Um, but when you start looking at the nervous system, when you start lo looking at polyvagal theory, or when you start looking at attachment theory, what, what you might find is that when you start to learn what your true needs are and start repatterning old strategies that are harmful or self-abandoning or uh, manipulative or abusive, that you start to notice that your relationships get, you feel more authentic mm -hmm. and alive and, and honest your relationships get better because they can fully be free and honest with themselves. And then, yeah, you're dissolving the patterning where you can be free and you can make choices that are self-honoring and you can make, and what I mean by self-honoring, I just want to clarify this, that I'm not saying that it's like this idea of like, um, F so-and-so <laughs> like they have needs, fuck them. It's, it's more like, hey, I'm centered in myself and I have this need for connection with you. And mm -hmm. I don't know how to get connection with you, but maybe we can negotiate reality together. And it becomes mm -hmm. more of a collaborative reality rather than I'm going to manipulate you with my people pleasing. I'm going to essentially mm -hmm. gaslight you so you'll love me. And mm -hmm. we're both going to mistrust our intuition now just to get mm -hmm. my needs right. of belonging and safety met. Right, yeah. And it, I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing Go ahead. Go ahead. 
<laughs> I just wanted to say I'm glad that you're doing this work and that you're you're really naming um, that codependency and the self-abandonment is so systemic and endemic. Um, I belong to, I don't know how many, at least a dozen Facebook groups that are about open relationships and polyamory and non-monogamy and so forth. All, they're all called different things, solo polyamory. So I get I get these messages all the time from these different groups, uh, you know, notifications. And so every so often I'll read the posts and I swear to God, like several times a week, I'll read the same story about a woman who's like, my husband is polyamorous and I'm not, and I love him. So I want him to be happy. So I'm trying to be okay with it. But, and then they tell you about some situation that's just horrifying, you know, (laughs) really like the other day that the woman was like, um, when he, so I let him go have, you know, I'm okay with him going and have a date with his girlfriend, um, but she lives far away, so she sleeps on the couch, and he's feeling really sad that he has to leave her on the couch, and he wants to bring her into our bed with us. What should I do? Oh, <laughs> this woman didn't even want to be non-monogamous in the first place, and now her husband is wanting to bring his girlfriend into bed with them. She doesn't even know the woman. <laughs> and I just see this over That's and over nothing. again, like, oh, my God, these these women just completely subjugate. They don't even know what their own needs are. They just want to be the good wife and love their husband and give him everything. And so is it that they're confusing love with this self-abandonment? Is that, is there, are they, did their nervous system learn that that is love? Exactly. 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 And I, I'm just as a disclaimer, men also, have this as well. <laughs> like it's not yes, I just see it so yeah. often the other way around, but yeah, it's not only. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so something that I've been playing with right now, um, it, it's not a form, a fully formed thought process because I'm just now touching it, um, is the, the link between, oh, gosh, love addiction and sex addiction and mm-hmm. how that plays out in codependency. So, you know, and, and, and how sex addiction, love addiction plays out in polyamorous communities. Um, I wouldn't consider mm-hmm. myself a polyamorous person, though I am in mm-hmm. a, um, I'm in a solo experience in my life right now where I am, I consider myself solo polyamorous, which means that mm-hmm. my, pri- my, my, my primary relationship is literally with myself. And that I'm cultivating healthy relationships with people where I'm not trying to escalate anything, but actually Mm -hmm. looking at the person from who they are rather than from the, a thing that they can give me, um, a placeholder that they can like, I want children and I want to get married and I'm more of a swinger when I'm in partnership where I can have this experience. Um, which I, you know, there's an, another term around like swingers being like really kind of non-consensual and toxic monogamy pieces, but it's like, I'm like, where is there a word? Maybe, you know, um, a word where it's like, I've been calling it swinger, which is like S W I I I I I exclamation point N G U R emphasis on ger. Um, but I've been, I've been seeing, like, just a side story. Um, but coming back to this, like, place of 
sex addiction, love addiction, the places where we're not communicating, and this um, dehumanizing concept of the one. <gasps> Do you know what I mean by how it dehumanizes people? Oh, absolutely. I always tell people, stop looking for the one. Just go meet people, and maybe somebody will turn out to be someone you have a great connection with. But if you're looking for the one, you're blind to all these other wonderful people that you could connect with on various levels. Um, in the sense of the one, what I've been again, I'm playing with these terms, and it's all pinging around in my head in the in the, the codependency container, <laughs> which is that's what my brain looks like. Um, I was thinking about the one, and one of my lovers said to me that he no longer looks through that filter, and I was mm-hmm. like, I wonder what that means. And I I thought about it a lot around if I'm dating you, and I'm, I have a checklist in my brain around what I need. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, well, she doesn't have a penis. And she doesn't have, you know, like, she's not, she doesn't drive a Mercedes. And, you mm-hmm. know, it, it starts to become the same system of the matrices of, of oppression in just mm-hmm. a very microcosmic form. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really allow you to meet the person. And I think that this is one of the mm-hmm. pieces around um, around why people go through these, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? When they're dating someone and then that person does something out of quote-unquote character and they're so disheveled, like the person who's their partner is so disheveled that they were like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe you're that person. Like, I Oh, it's called, darn it, it was so close there, Um, that you go through this, oh, my God, how I didn't even know you because you weren't listening. You were actually putting them into a box or placing them in a mold of something that you wanted so deeply to meet something Mm -hmm. that you desired. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I mean by the a kind of a dehumanization of the one is that you're placing someone in a box and if they don't fit into that box, whether you're polyamorous or monogamous or whatever you are, I've seen this happen everywhere, mm-hmm. that they'll mm-hmm. walk away from something that might be, oh, I didn't get the right feeling from you, even though we're values aligned and we're, um, you know, everything is aligned except I don't have limerence or I don't have this obsessive excitement, or you don't have the the body that I want, you know? It's, yeah. it's a really interesting thought around how these things show up. Right, right. Yeah, it's so good. I, I, I love your thought process around that, because I've noticed that too. And I, I have a situation in my life right now with somebody who, you know, I had a beautiful romantic connection with and because we don't live close together, he's, I feel like he's withholding um, his heart, you know, and, and his affection, he's being stingy with it. He said something like, if you lived closer to me, I'd spend more time with you. And I'm like, well, who are you spending time with now where you live with? Nobody. Well, <laughs> like, okay. Until you, until you find that perfect person who lives a block away, you're just going to say no to all the other connections that are out there <laughs> but there's some kind of fear that if they I've had experienced this a lot with men I have a lot of experience with polyamory and often the men I date don't and they feel afraid to really 
dive into the connection that's in front of them for fear that I'm going to take it to mean that we're on the relationship escalator now and that they're promising me something and I'm going to want their money or whatever. Um, so it can be really frustrating when you just want to love the person for what we have right now and they don't believe you that you don't want any more than that. <laughs> We've just done a number on each other, really. And, mm-hmm. and again, I'm going to come back to the strategies strategies to get our needs met. Um, I think I said this, but I'm going to say it even more clear. I believe that people-pleasing is essentially gaslighting. It's manipulating reality to get a need met. If I'm people pleasing yeah. you and it's and it's inauthentic to me, if I'm I'm if I'm like I don't want this, like if I'm gonna have sex with you, I'm just gonna be really direct. If I'm gonna have sex with you because I want you to like me or love me or or give me attention and I don't wanna have sex with you and I'm saying yes and you're like, Trish, um, you don't it doesn't really look like you want this and I'm like, No, 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 I do, I do and all of me, like I'm so disassociated with my body and my, you know, my own needs that I'm like, yeah, I do. And, and I become to build resentment. We're both har- I'm I'm literally harming both of our intuition. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. literally manipulating reality in such a way that means that neither of us can, can trust each other. I'm creating resentment for mm-hmm. you for wanting to have sex with me and you're, your body can't actually like on an animal level can't attune with me. Because I'm saying yes when I mean no, and that is just insanely confusing to the nervous system. Our bodies are meant to co-regulate, but that means mm-hmm. that things have to be authentic and aligned. Like I have to be honest mm-hmm. with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, humans mm-hmm. are fascinating. <laughs> I love geeking out with you about relationships. You know, I feel like people like us who just love geeking out on this stuff are pushing the conversation forward for people who don't have time or it's just they just want to have a relationship and not to think about it and have to learn all these skills. They just want to have a relationship. But no, it's it's so hard and none of us learn these things in school. So we we go out there and we try to have relationships and we go, What's going on? Where where are we fighting all the time? Why am I so triggered? Things are blowing up. And we have to learn all these things if we're gonna have the love that we want. And I'm just glad that there's people like us in the world that are exploring how to do that in a beautiful way. So thank you for your work in the world. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Can I really love <laughs> Oops. You just suddenly beautiful. went into like an echo for some reason. Sorry. Better? Your voice. Something happened with your connection. I don't know what it was. Oh, that's much better. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, I love geeking out. Okay, good. Out. So, so we're almost out of time. I want to give you a chance to just wrap up your thoughts and then also um, tell our listeners how they can reach you and anything else that you want to say. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and, and for being able to just, you know, I'm, I'm also really excited to have shared this time with you. Not everyone can get into sort of the concepts and the, the just follow along. Some, sometimes I'm a little much for people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. <laughs> so tell our listeners how they can reach you. And um, if you want to make any offers or anything, this is your time. Oh, awesome. 
Well, thank you all for following along and listening along. Um, you can find me at trishwrightloves.com or trishwrightglobal. You can also find me with the Trish Wright Loves on Facebook and Instagram. You're welcome to follow me. It's all it's all this kind of stuff all the time. Um, I am doing a sensation game for 30 days where you get to kind of watch me go through sensations, which might be fun for you. Um, mm. Follow my podcast, The Self Love Show, on Facebook as well as anywhere you get your podcasts. And The Self Love Show is a really amazing opportunity to see and, and learn from coaches from all over the world, coaches and therapists and musicians and artists and, and people who are committed to self-love, which is not like, you know, self-love and being arrogant. And it, it's about truly finding the places of authenticity and accepting oneself there so that we can build better relationships. Um, you can find that, at, you know, everywhere. And it, it'll give you an opportunity to go through the the show, listen to the person, and then you get a free tool that they'll take you through at the end. It's, it's been really powerful for a lot of our listeners. So the self-love show cool. with Trish Wright Don Light. Awesome. Yay. Yeah. Well, that's so great. I'm so glad you were on my show, Trish. It was really great getting to know you, and I look forward to more collaborations in the future. All right. Well, maybe we'll be on the self-love show. <laughs> that would be great. I would love that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Okay. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.